The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. I love stories that have enticing foreshadowing. Now, I probably made it clear before that I was terrible in English class, like middle school and high school, I was just scraping by. My mom had taught English at the high school I went to for 30 years and had been the chair of the department, so all my teachers had known her. Thankfully, she had retired before I had gotten there, but it was like, man, I just struggled. It was, it was hard, but I did love foreshadowing, but I didn't understand. I googled this morning uh, words that you're supposed to know from high school English, things like figures of speech, illusion, assonance, onomatopoeia. I used to love that word. I didn't have a clue what it meant, but I loved onomatopoeia. I don't even know if that's exactly how you say it. That's how I always said it. But the one thing I did know and kind of understand was foreshadowing in a story, that something kind of comes early, that you focus in on something, and then that's going to have a point later in the story or later in the movie. It's almost kind of fits together like a puzzle. So in books, you think about something coming later. In movies, the camera at the, near the beginning of the movie zooms in on a, a locket or a sheet of paper. Or maybe there's this long stare between a man and a woman, and you're thinking, oh, there's some kind of history there that's going to come out into fruition in this movie. Maybe there's a zooming in on a, on a fairly family heirloom, whatever, whatever it might be. You guys know I love Harry Potter. This is probably not the best instance of foreshadowing in it, but I was thinking about Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. It's the worst movie in my opinion. You guys can have your own opinions of the the Harry Potter movies, but there's a scene near the beginning of the movie where we see the the um, the lens zoom in on Ginny Weasley's cauldron, and there's one book in the cauldron. And then there's this antagonist, Lucius Malfoy. He takes the book out. They interact for a minute. They're not being kind to each other. And then about a minute later, the lens again zooms in on the cauldron, and Malfoy drops the book back in. But instead of one book, there's two books. And now there's this black book in there. There should be, I think there may be a picture on the screen. The top one is the, the first instance, the second instance. Now there's two books in the cauldron. And if you catch it, that's going to have major importance as the story goes along. It's quick, but you need to be paying attention. Now there's two books. Why are there two books? And why did the, you know, who makes movies? I don't know what they're called. The maker of movies. Why did they take time to give five seconds to looking at these two books? Well, it's going to have some importance later in the story. It's going to have importance. So this happens in our text today. Now we are going to be in Exodus chapter 1. But if you're joining us or if you, for the first time or if you've missed a few weeks, what we've been trying to do over the last few weeks and what we're going to do over the next couple of months is we're taking a 12-week series to try to tell the true story of the whole world. I don't know if you're like me, but I grew up thinking that the Bible was essentially a book that listed out a bunch of rules that if you want to be Christian, you have to obey. All right, To be Christian is to obey the rules of the Bible. That's what I thought until the Lord opened my eyes my sophomore, junior year of college and started to show me, no, this is a much grander, beautiful story of God pursuing and redeeming a people for himself. So we're seeking to put the puzzle pieces all together. We're going to try to get at what is the Bible's 
storyline. My Bible was 1,500 pages, but what we're arguing is there's really one story. It's written by a bunch of different authors. There's 66 books, but it's all telling one story, pointing towards one really climactic moment. I know climax. I'm a good you know, English student. My mom would be proud. We started uh, in the book of Genesis a few weeks ago. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. Genesis just means beginnings or origins. Chapter 1, these will appear on the screen. Chapter 1 was garden where God created a good world filled with complementary things. We looked at Genesis 1 and 2. We saw land and sky. We saw water and land. We saw uh, man and woman. God created it this way as a clue to the whole thing. That like Eve for Adam, we are made for him. So the main story thread that we said that morning is that God intends to be present with his people in his place. Then we got to chapter 2, Genesis 3, and we see the fall, that conflict enters the picture. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden where they were to enjoy God's presence and cultivate God's good world, but they rebel, and the result is they're cast from God's presence and God's place. But there's hope. God will restore what's lost. He will crush the serpent. And then chapter 3, we see further promises coming. We really see a a big promise. We see that God is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. That's where we were at last week with Jim. God initiates with Abraham, this very famous character in the Old Testament, and he initiates to redeem a people for himself. So last week we concluded at Genesis 22. Again, that's the first book of the Bible. Genesis goes up to chapter 50, so just a very quick reference of what happens from Genesis 23 to Genesis 50. We find Abraham's son Isaac, and then we find Isaac's son Jacob. Jacob has his name eventually changed to Israel. Israel is obviously the famous descendants that come from the line of Abraham. And then one of Jacob's sons, one of Israel's sons, is Joseph. So Isaac Jacob and Joseph, those are really the three primary characters in the latter half of the book of Genesis. And then that leads us to this morning, chapter 4, where we're going to look at the Exodus. Now we're going to look at five key chapters in the first third of this book today, but we're going to start off in Exodus 1. There should be a a timeline on the screen. We're in the, the fourth chapter of this timeline. Abraham Where we were last week in chapter 3 lived around 2000 B.C. And now we're taking a jump of about 500 years. We're getting to around 1500 B.C. where we get to Moses. And Moses is kind of the chief character in the book of Exodus. In Exodus 1, in the first seven verses, we get a little bit of reference to that Jacob, who became Israel in Genesis 32, that he has 70 descendants. So it's important to remember, Jacob... The key figure kind of coming out of Genesis, who is Israel, he has 70 descendants, and they all end up in Egypt because of this famine. And then verse 7 in Exodus 1, the people of Israel are increasing in number and strength, and they're filling the land. So the people of Israel are growing bigger and bigger. Let's read Exodus chapter 1, verses 8 through 14, where we're going to see Israel enslaved. Exodus chapter 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. 
So this new king, there's a new Pharaoh, he's over Egypt. He doesn't know Joseph because uh, Joseph came into the land, hundreds of years pass, and then Moses is born. And so this new king, he doesn't know anything about Joseph. Joseph was a beloved character at the end of Genesis. He was beloved by the king of Egypt. But this new king, he doesn't know anything about Joseph. He doesn't know anything about Israel. Verse 9, And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So this is the king speaking to his people in Egypt. And he's essentially saying, Israel's becoming too big. There's too many Israelites. They're becoming too mighty. If somebody else comes at war with them, they might join them and then we'd really be at odds or Israel might just lead a coup at some point. And that is going to be problematic for us. Verse 11, Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They, the Israelites, built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramesses. So he's saying, uh, essentially, that the um, king in Egypt set these kind of slave masters over the Israelites and put hard burdens on them. They essentially enslaved the Israelites to protect themselves so that the Israelites wouldn't come up. And the Israelites end up building cities for the king. Verse 12, But the more they were oppressed, the more the Israelites were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So again, they are oppressed, the Israelites are impressed, but they are growing. They are growing in number, they're growing in strength. And so the Egyptians are in dread of Israel. Verse 13, so they ruthlessly, the Egyptians ruthlessly, made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So the Egyptians enslave the Israelites. They're saying these people are not going to rebel against us. They're not going to join our enemies. We're going to so control them and put them down through enslavement that we will be able to protect ourselves. So we see Israel is enslaved. In the rest of chapter 1, the king is tired of seeing Israel increase in size. So he makes a decree for them to kill any uh, son that is born to an Israelite. Chapter 2, Moses is born, but then his mother hides him for three months. His mother then puts him in a basket, and then it ends up that Pharaoh's daughter finds Moses. And Moses, this famous character, the chief character in the book of Exodus, becomes Pharaoh's daughter's son. And then chapter 3, the Lord appears to Moses in a burning bush. We're going to pick it up in verse 7. And we're going to see that Moses is called to help the Israelites. Verse 7, chapter 3. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. So God acknowledges that he has seen the suffering of his people, that he's heard the cries of his people. Verse 8, And I have come down to deliver them 
out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That sounds like an amazing place. I love milk. Milk is my favorite drink. Man, that just sounds like a terrific place to be. To the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. So verse 8, God is showing that he promises to deliver the Israelites and bring them into this wonderful, luscious, amazing land. Verse 9, And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So again, God acknowledges that he hears the cries of his people and he tells Moses that he's going to send him to Pharaoh to help bring Israel out of Egypt, to bring them out of slavery. Verse 11, but Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Moses is like, who am I? I'm just an ordinary guy. I don't have the power to go to the king of Egypt. Maybe the most powerful man in the entire world, definitely in the world I know. How am I going to go to him and tell him to free my people? I can't do that. Verse 12, God said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God says, I'm going to be with you, Moses. But then it's kind of funny. The sign to him is that, hey, after you've done all of it and you've gotten the people out of Egypt, then I will really show you that 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 was what you were supposed to do. So the sign's going to come after the actual event. But God promises that he will be with Moses. So we see Moses called, and then the rest of chapter 3 God makes clear who he is to Moses. He makes very clear who he is to the people of Israel. And he makes the promise once again to deliver Israel. Skipping over to chapter 6 in Exodus. God is speaking to Moses. He's establishing that he is the God of Moses' fathers. And that he has established a covenant with them. He's heard the groans of Israel. So we pick up Exodus chapter 6, verse 6, and we're going to see God's promise reiterated. Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm And with great acts of judgment. The Lord tells Moses to speak to Israel and tell them that he will bring them out of slavery again. He will deliver them. He will redeem them. Verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, And to Jacob, those names should kind of ring a bell, the famous forefathers of Genesis. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Israel will be God's people. 
And the Lord, Yahweh, will be Israel's God. They will know that he is God and he will bring them out of slavery. He will fulfill the promise that he made back in Genesis 50, verse 24, to give a land to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses speaks, but they don't listen. They faced enslavement. They faced trial after trial. They faced hardship after hardship. Their brokenness and slavery makes them doubt and question God. I assume the same might be true for us in in trials and in hardship. We come to question God, even though that God has promised his presence with us. It's easy to doubt and question God in the midst of hardship. Exodus chapter 11, chapters 11 or 7 through 11 are where we face nine of the ten plagues that happen where God shows his power over creation. Maybe you've heard of these where God turns water to blood, he uh, does a miracle with frogs, he does a miracle by sending hail, he makes the world entirely dark, he does these plagues, shows these plagues, performs these plagues. To show his power over creation. And Moses is regularly going to Pharaoh at the end of each of these plagues and saying, Let my people go. But God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Let's pick up in Exodus chapter 11, the very last verse. Exodus 11, verse 10. Moses and Aaron did all these wonders, did all these nine plagues before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he did not let the people of Israel go out of his land. So Israel's sitting here questioning. You're doing all these amazing things. You've promised that you're going to deliver us. And yet God is continuing to harden Pharaoh's heart and not let Israel go quite yet. Exodus chapter 12. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. And here we're going to see the Passover. Exodus chapter 12 verse 1. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to that, to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in these first six verses of Exodus 12, we see that the Israelites are to take an unblemished lamb. The Israelites are to have a perfect lamb. A lamb without any kind of spot. Well, why is that? Let's pick up in verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. 
Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. The blood of the lamb is to cover the people, is to cover the people's houses. They are to put it on the doorpost. And then verse 11. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. He's saying he is the one true God. There are no other gods. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this event is the Lord's Passover. The Lord will pass through the land of Egypt that very night. He will strike all the firstborn of Egypt. He's going to strike every firstborn male and he's going to strike every animal. He will show that he is the Lord and that there is no other God besides him. And what's the sign going to be for him to pass over the Israelites. It's going to be the blood on the doorpost. That's going to serve as a sign so that when he sees the blood, he will pass over the house and the firstborn will be spared. One thing I was thinking when uh, reading through uh, these verses and thinking about it being the Passover, I appreciate the simplicity of the name of this event. There's all of these kind of very complicated uh, names throughout the scriptures for different events. We have Yom Kippur, we have the Sabbath in the New Testament, and kind of in our day in history, we celebrate things like Lent and Easter. But sometimes like, what do those words even mean? I don't, I don't know the origins, they don't seem abundantly obvious, but this one is. This one is called the Passover. God is going to pass over the people when he sees the blood of the lamb shed. This is going to be similar with the Exodus. We go on in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29 through 32. We have this 10th plague. We have this last plague where the death of the firstborn takes place for any who do not have the blood of the lamb covering them. And then Exodus chapter 12, verses 33 through 42, we're not going to read it, but this is the Exodus. Exodus being a mass exit, a mass exit of a lot of people. There are well over a million Israelites at this point. If you remember back to chapter 1, verse 5, there were only 70 descendants of Israel. So a small group. These are all the people of Israel. We could gather them all in this room. But then chapter 12, verse 37 says, There are 600,000 men, excluding women and children. There are now well over a million Israelites. They have grown and grown and grown. Exactly what the Egyptians were afraid of. Exactly why the Egyptians enslaved the Israelites. The Israelites have been enslaved now for 430 years. They have grown and grown and grown. And then Exodus chapter 14, 
Verses 1 through 20, I'm just going to briefly summarize, and then we'll read the latter part of Exodus 14. Verses 1 through 4, Exodus 14, God says he is going to harden Pharaoh's heart one more time. Egypt is going to pursue Israel to bring them back into slavery. Israel, or, uh, Egypt let the people go because of the death of the firstborn, but then Pharaoh's going to start to question, why did I let a million slaves go? They are so important to us. So it, Pharaoh and his people are going to pursue Israel, but God is going to get the glory, and the Egyptians are going to know that the Lord is the one true God. So then verses 5 through 9, the Egyptians march after Israel. And then verses 10 through 20 in uh, Exodus 14, Israelites begin to question why Moses brought them out of slavery. At least we had food back in Egypt. But now you've brought us onto the brink of nothing and the Egyptians are pursuing us and they're going to kill us. But Moses says they will, that the Lord will deliver them. Exodus chapter 14, let's read verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. So they've come to the brink of the Red Sea. They have nowhere to go. They're being surrounded by the Egyptians. They can't cross the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So Moses splits the Red Sea. Maybe one of the most famous passages uh, throughout the Bible. If you went through a vacation Bible school growing up, you probably talked about Exodus 14 and the crossing of the Red Sea and God splitting the sea. Israel's able to cross on dry ground. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, into the midst of this dry land, all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. So all the Egyptians go after the Israelites. Verse 24, and in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into a panic clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily, so they couldn't cross the sea very quickly. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Just back up a few verses in Exodus 14, verse 14. God promised to fight for Israel. Now Israel has crossed the Red Sea. The Egyptians are trying to go after them. But God is fighting. God is working on behalf of of his people. Verse 26. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea. Then the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen. Of all the host of Pharaoh that had followed them into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground through the sea, the waters being a wall to them on their right and on the left. The Egyptians pursued after Israel and they were destroyed. Because God worked in behalf of his people. The waters came back over the Egyptians and not one of them survived. Verse 30, 
Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Verse 31, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. The Lord saved Israel. Israel saw his mighty acts to deliver them. And they actually responded appropriately this time. They had been questioning God. They had been asking, why did you bring us out of slavery to this hardship to be surrounded by the Egyptians, to have no food. Instead of grumbling and doubting, they fear the Lord and they believe him. And now, this isn't always going to be the case for the Israelites. We're going to see over the coming weeks, they're going to question God more and more and more. But here in this moment, they believe the Lord. They've seen the Lord work. So what have we seen, Exodus 1 through 14? We've seen God Deliver Israel through the Passover lamb first and through the crossing of the Red Sea. Now we can read this. We can read Exodus 1 through 14. I've provided this summary over the last 15 to 20 minutes. We can think these are important. We can see them as, yeah, this is an important story for Israel. But why? Why are these stories so important? Well, we see the story of God's promise and God's care just in an incredible way. But what does it foreshadow? What does it depict that is to come? We see some of the themes of Exodus repeated throughout the Bible and ultimately fulfilled in the climax of the story, the person and work of Jesus. So there's key aspects to this story that are repeated throughout the Bible. The first one, as we think about the true story of the whole world, this will be on the screen. Jesus is our Passover lamb, the one who is sacrificed in our place, the one who covers our sins. Jesus is the Passover lamb. In John chapter 1, John the Baptist is baptizing a bunch of people. And then he sees Jesus walking to him. And in John, John chapter 1, verse 29, he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away our sin both individually and corporately. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, in a passage about church discipline against uh, this sexually immoral man, we find verse 7 saying, Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump. Leaven is an important theme in Exodus 1-14. through 14. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. But as you really are unleavened, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Christ again is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb that covers us, that washes us clean. And then 1 Peter, God is the one who will judge. We are to fear him, according to 1 Peter 1. Why are we to fear him? Well, verse 18 and 19 make clear. Knowing that you were ransomed, 
you were paid for from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Inherited, you inherited the sin nature, but you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold. That's not what your sin was paid for by. But with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Christ is the one, Christ is the lamb that is perfect and holy. You and I are separated from the one true God of the Bible, from Yahweh, from the Lord, from this God that we've just read about in Exodus 1 through 14. We are separated because of our sin. But Christ is the lamb who was sacrificed, who made the payment. Our sin must be paid for. One sin is enough to separate us from this holy God. Christ is the lamb without spot or blemish. So the first thing we see from the true story is that Jesus is our Passover lamb. The second one, Jesus is the greater Moses and he's leading a new exodus. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. I'm not going to read it. just want to provide a, a brief summary of Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Those verses tell us that Jesus is faithful over God's house, just as Moses was faithful over God's house. But Jesus is worth more glory than Moses. Just as the one who builds the house is due more honor than the house itself. We think about any house that is built. You go all around Greer, there's houses being built everywhere. And houses are pretty amazing. We have electricity, we have plumbing, we're able to be inside, we have HVAC, we have all of these amazing features that we are blessed with. And yet the house is not worth as much honor as the one who actually builds it, as the one who comes up with the plans, as the one who designs it and thinks about it and makes the plan happen. So God says the same thing in Hebrews 3. Jesus is worth more glory than Moses. All things were created by Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 and 16. Christ is faithful over God's house as in a son, and we are that house. So Jesus is building and molding a people for himself. So we see Jesus is our Passover lamb first. Jesus is the greater Moses second. And third, as we think about the big story, how does Exodus 1 through 14 fit in? We see that God cares for his people. God pursues his people. God loves his people. And the same is true for us today. If you are in Christ, if you have given your life to Jesus as the Lord and Savior, if you worship the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God cares for his people. And it doesn't mean things are going to be easy doesn't mean that all of life is going to be perfect. Far from it. And I think we see that in Exodus 1 through 14. But God cares for his people. Now we think about those three, thing, help, those three things help us think about the big story, the true story of the whole world. And those truths are vital. They're vital for us thinking about the Bible being one story. But how does this big story intersect 
your story a little more particularly. So I wanted to provide three things, three application points as we think about your story. First, know, fear, and believe in the faithful God of the Bible. Whether you are a believer in this room, whether you were invited by a neighbor, a coworker, a friend, this is your first time gathering with a church in a long time, maybe ever. I just want to say that it is okay to have questions. It is okay to doubt. It is okay to wrestle with God. It is okay to ask questions of who God is and what he's about. Jacob has his name changed to Israel, Genesis 32, literally because Israel means a word very closely meaning to wrestle and to wrestle with God. Genesis 32, Jacob wrestles with God. We can doubt, we can question. Exodus chapter 6, verse 9, Israel does not listen to Moses because of the brokenness, because of the pain that have led to doubt and questions. But God wants us to know him. He is faithful. Even if your circumstances may say differently, this is why we need God's word. This is why we need the community of other believers. And this is why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. In the hardest of moments, your emotions are not the end-all, be-all. Your emotions, your feelings are not the ultimate indicator of what is true and right. What is true and right comes from God's Word. And God's Word makes very clear that He is faithful. So God wants us to know Him to fear him as the one holy true God who is over all things, who cares for all things. And he wants us to believe in him, to trust him, to trust Romans 8, that he is working all things for the good of those who love him. Number two, look to Jesus as the Passover lamb for freedom from sin and death. Hebrews uh, chapter 2 makes very clear that Jesus conquers sin, death, and the devil. He offers true freedom. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, should be on the screen, says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation, to make payment to make the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. This verse tells us that Jesus serves humans as a faithful and merciful high priest. He is the atoning sacrifice. He's the the payment. Our sins must be paid for your sins and my sins. And Christ makes that payment. Jesus is the payment for our sins. He suffered For our sins. He is the Passover lamb where we can experience true freedom. And so, if you are not a Christian in the room, if you have been searching, if you're wondering what following Jesus is all about, following Jesus is about the fact that He is the perfect Passover lamb 
unblemished, who covers our sins. He is the Lord. He is our Savior. He's the one who covers our sin and he conquers death. Christ has been offered for you and for me. One thing I would encourage us to do this week, whether you're a believer or not a believer, if you would join me in just reading through the book of Hebrews. We're in such a sweet place in in Exodus, and we're going to be kind of in the Old Testament for a number of weeks more. But the book of Hebrews is 13 chapters that gives such clarity to what the Old Testament is to be about and how it all points to Christ. So I'm going to spend time this week reading, maybe listening. Uh, As I'm up in the middle of the night, we have a little three-and-a-half-week-old baby, so I'm rocking him. I'm just going to listen to the book of Hebrews and let it saturate my mind and let it show me how the truth of the book of Exodus, the book of Genesis, the rest of the Old Testament, how it points to Christ. would encourage you guys to, to join me if you're able. Number three, how this applies to your story. Remember this story when we take the Lord's Supper. So we think about the Passover. The Lord's Supper was instituted when the Passover was happening in uh, the normal Jewish calendar. We're going to partake in the Lord's Supper next week. The Lord's Supper, it's really built on the context of the Exodus and on the Passover lamb. If you read Luke uh, 22... Verses 7 through 23, Jesus and his disciples are partaking of the Passover feast right before Jesus is about to be betrayed, tried, and then crucified. He is going to be the Passover lamb that is to be sacrificed, to be sacrificed on the cross. So in Luke 22, Verse 15, Jesus earnestly says he earnestly desires to eat the Passover feast with his disciples. And then in verse 19 and 20, it'll be on the screen. It says, and he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Paul, when he gives instructions in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 11, he, he uh, articulates how Jesus is remembering the Passover meal. Jesus' body and blood were given for you. They were given for me. If you are a Christian in the room, that is our hope. That is why we want to take the Lord's Supper regularly. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel, Jesus' body and blood given for our redemption. It's given for us personally, but it's also given for us corporately, which is why we take the Lord's Supper all together. It binds us together. It brings unity to the body. And really, this is the pinnacle of the true story of the whole world. Jesus, the Passover lamb, given for you and given for me and given for us. So I pray next week that you would remember Jesus, remember the Passover as we take the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm going to pray to to conclude this portion of our our service. And I want to just ask you after that to take just a couple of moments to reflect. 
to think about how beautiful the gospel is, to think about how beautiful the sacrifice of Jesus is. If you've never put your faith in Christ, if you have questions about what it means to follow Jesus, what it means to be a Christian, I would love to talk with you. I'll be outside, um, just outside the, the back doors after the service. I would love to talk to you. Your neighbor, I'm sure, would love to talk to you, the one who brought you. We would love to talk about what it means to follow Christ. The Bible is not a book of rules simply to follow. There are things that we try to do. The way we live reflects our faith, and all those things are very important. But ultimately, we are telling the true story of the whole world that the Bible makes clear, that we are putting our faith in the one true Lord and Savior who has given himself, Jesus the Passover Lamb, to redeem us. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we come before you as broken sinners. Lord, each and every one of us to our very deepest core, every part of our being, we are broken by sin. And yet, Lord, the beauty of the gospel, the beauty of Christ, our Passover lamb, his blood shed to cover us, to redeem us, to ransom us, means that we are washed whiter than snow. We are clean, Lord. And we praise you for that, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that you have lived a perfect life. That you took on flesh. That you taught us how to live in so many ways throughout your teachings. And yet, Lord, you also gave your life for us. Paul makes clear in 1 Corinthians 15 that there are some things that are of first importance that Christ lived, that Christ died, that Christ was buried, and that Christ was raised again, conquering sin and death. Jesus, I pray that we would be able to look to you as one who was sacrificed for us one who covers us. Lord, I pray that that would bring joy to our hearts. Lord, I pray you would refresh us with the good news of the gospel. Lord, as we go throughout our weeks, no doubt, as we leave this place, so many things will fill our minds, to-do list, the aches and the pains maybe of our physical bodies or the things that are before us this week. Lord, I pray you would rejuvenate us with the beauty of the gospel. That you have been writing a story for all of time, since before time. That you have been foreshadowing in Exodus that Jesus would be the Passover lamb. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. We thank you that you are faithful to deliver us. We pray that you would continue to work in us, that you would hold us fast, Lord, that our hope and our joy would be found in Christ alone. We love you.